Hello and welcome again to our midweek service. It's good to see everybody and as David said in the introduction for the visitors, it's especially good to see you and we hope that you feel welcome here. For a little while tonight, I want to talk about a character in the Bible that is very well known and that is the character of Peter. Now, one thing and what got me thinking about this study was even some conversations that I've had in the past about how we often view the Apostle Peter. When you think of the Apostles and the various men and women of the Bible, sometimes it's kind of hard to really think we could ever live up to the examples that they leave us. We read about men in the Old Testament and women that just had such incredible faith that sometimes we feel like they're on a different plane entirely. And the same is true when we get to the New Testament, especially when you read about someone like the Apostle Paul. You read about his conversion, and from that point forward, it seems like he never had a trouble, he never had a care. I don't think that's accurate. I think Paul was just like anybody, and he had to grow in his faith, and he faced challenges, no doubt. But when we look at Paul and all that he did and all that he endured, sometimes it's kind of daunting to even think about trying to live up to the example of the Apostle Paul. But when I hear people talk about Peter, it's not that people don't respect Peter's faith, but a lot of times people say, you know, Peter's just a lot more relatable. Now, I, can, I can kind of identify with Peter a little bit more, and I think the reason that is, admittedly the reason that I like to try and identify with Peter, is because Peter made a lot of mistakes, or Peter had a lot of his mistakes recorded. In the New Testament. And we look at those and when you read commentaries or you hear people preach, probably even when I preached through the life of Christ, we get to Peter and we say, oh Peter, brash Peter, rash Peter, always jumping and always opening his mouth Peter. And we talk about Peter and a lot of his mistakes. And he made mistakes. He denied Jesus. Uh, the story we're going to look at tonight, he suffered from doubt. Later on, Paul, Paul's even going to say in the Galatians that even after the church had begun and after Peter preached to the Gentiles, he had to be rebuked uh, one time because he wasn't acting the way that he ought to. And so I think sometimes we see Peter's mistakes and so we think, yeah, Peter makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves. But you know, I don't know that that's always fair because... I do think that sometimes the hot water that Peter found himself in was because he was bold enough to act or speak in the first place. Sometimes Peter did let the cart run away with the horse, so to speak, and sometimes he opened his mouth before he should have, but sometimes he was willing to act when the reason the others didn't make a fool of themselves was because they were perhaps too scared to do anything in the first place. And I think that's the case with the story that I want to consider tonight, a story that I'm sure everyone here is very familiar with. And that's the story of the time when Peter was called to walk on water over to Jesus. Let's go ahead and read that account. In Matthew, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 14. And just to set up the scene a little bit, uh, what has happened just previous to this is a miracle that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. All four of the Gospels record the miracle of the day when Jesus fed 5,000, and that's just the men, uh, a huge crowd of thousands of people with just a few loaves and a couple of fish. 
That's recorded in all four of the Gospels. Now what's recorded next varies a little bit in detail. But what we can piece together is that the crowds were so amazed and so impressed, they were ready to come and make Jesus the king. They were ready to commit insurrection and rebellion against Rome. They were ready to crown Jesus as the Messiah. Now he was the Messiah. But they were very much mistaken about the nature of his kingdom. And so Jesus is going to shoo off the disciples and have them get into a boat. They're probably somewhere on the northern or eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he's going to send them away. And so they're going to start rowing back towards Capernaum on the western or the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And we're going to be told Jesus is going to go up on the mountain. And he's going to pray alone there on the mountain. So let's read there in Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, the way that this story often gets told, and the way that it's often preached, and again, I'm probably guilty of this myself, is the big focus comes when Peter begins to sink. And we make a big deal about the doubt and the unfaithfulness of Peter. Now that's an important story. And that's a lesson that needs to be learned. And that's something we'll probably make a couple of comments about. Or we'll look at in our study for a bit this evening. But when I take a step back and really look at everything that's in this story. While there is a failure on Peter's part that we should learn from. I also think there is a great deal of positive faith that Peter displays that we can also learn from. And that's what I really want to focus on this evening. And when we look at that and we consider that, and you think of Peter's faith, if Peter's faith is little faith, as Jesus said, then that's a big warning to me because when I really look at myself compared to Peter in this circumstance, I don't know that I always even measure up to the little faith that Peter had. And so, here we find ourselves with the disciples on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. This is not the first time something like this has happened. Sometime before this in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus had told the disciples to get into a boat and they were going to go across to the other side. And Jesus was with them, but he was so tired he fell asleep on the stern. And one of these great windstorms came and whipped up the Sea of Galilee to the point that the disciples thought they were going to perish. They wake him up. Jesus stands up and simply rebukes the wind and the waves and the, sea, the storm ceases and the sea is calm. And the disciples are terrified because they realize only God has that type of power. But then we fast forward a little while 
to the events that we've just talked about. Jesus has spent the day preaching and he's fed the multitudes and he has sent them away. And they're beginning to go across the Sea of Galilee and another one of these storms hits. Now this is probably, in fact, it's probably a wind storm. And these are storms that from what I've read, I've never been to uh, Israel or the Sea of Galilee, but from what I've read, these can come on very suddenly. They're not necessarily a thunderstorm. In fact, the, the skies could be potentially crystal clear. But the winds come down over the eastern mountains that are on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and they come down into that basin. The Sea of Galilee is actually a little bit lower than sea level. The only thing lower, I believe, is the Dead Sea as far as any body of water. And so these winds come down and they could get trapped in that basin and they would tear the Sea of Galilee up and it could become very, very dangerous, very deadly to be on the sea during one of these windstorms. And they could come on very suddenly. And so the disciples are going across and that's probably what happens. One of these windstorms occurs and Jesus this time is not with them. Now, it would have been one thing for the disciples to have Jesus with them again, and this windstorm happens, and they think, it's okay, Jesus has taken care of this before, but this time, Jesus isn't with them when it happens. And these are experienced sailors, many of them are fishermen, but these storms could best uh, even the greatest of sailors on the Sea of Galilee. And this time, Jesus isn't there, so they do their best, and they're struggling, and we're told that Jesus looks out, and he can tell that they're struggling. They're a long ways off at this point, but they're struggling to make way against the wind, and so Jesus goes to them. He goes to their aid, he walks on the water, and he gets close, and when the disciples see this, they see someone out on this body of water, their natural inclination is not, oh look, there's Jesus coming to us, they're terrified. They think it may be a ghost. Now, that's one of those things that we may say, well, why would they think that? Surely they know better than thinking that this is a ghost. But what would you have thought? They've never seen Jesus do this before. They've seen him do some amazing things. But were they supposed to expect Jesus to just come taking a stroll on these stormy waters? So they come to the conclusion, the only conclusion they can think is, this is some type of spirit. This is some type of ghost. But Jesus calls out and he tries to calm their fears. He says, do not be afraid. It is I. And of course, it's Peter that responds, saying, if it is you, Lord, then bid me or command me to come to you. Now, a few things that we see here. First of all, that I think is commendable in Peter's example is that Peter believed in Jesus and he believed in Jesus's power. Now, some commentators take that phrase where it says, if it is you, as kind of a, a statement of doubt in and of itself. Peter hears this being, this presence out on the water say, don't worry, it's me. But Peter's going to make this spirit prove it. He's going to say, all right, if it's you, then you tell me to come out there to you. Well, I don't think that's what Peter's doing. In fact, from what I can read from some commentators, the Greek there is actually given in a sense that is a statement of fact. Another way we might translate this or think of this is Peter is saying, Lord, since it is you, because it is you, then command me to come out to you. I think Peter believed when he heard the Lord's voice that he really saw Jesus. When Peter heard this, he believed this was not a ghost, this was not a spirit, but he believed it really was the Lord. Now what's that mean? That implies that Peter was able to come to the conclusion and the belief quite quickly that Jesus was able to do something that no other human being could do, namely walk on water. 
not only walk on water, but to do so in the midst of a terrible, deadly windstorm on the Sea of Galilee. But for Peter, it doesn't seem like it was much of a leap or much struggle at all for him to believe this incredible power and this incredible truth about the Lord. But you know what's even more amazing? Peter believed that Jesus was so powerful that not only was Jesus able to walk on water, but if it was Jesus' will, he could enable Peter to walk on the water. Now there are things that Jesus had done for the disciples already. When he had sent them out, he gave them power over unclean spirits and power to cure diseases. And it doesn't seem to be much of a struggle in Peter's mind to conclude, if Jesus wants me out there with him, then he can help me walk on water. He believed in the power of Jesus. And that is some marvelous faith. But not only that, Peter wanted to be with Jesus. You notice that none of the other disciples, and maybe this isn't fair, maybe some of them were thinking this and Peter beat them to the punch. Maybe they were just too awestruck to say anything. So we don't want to uh, condemn them or judge them too harshly. But it is Peter that requests to go and be with Jesus. And think about what that means. Now, it's not that there's a great deal of safety in the boat. But surely of all the places to be in the middle of a storm-tossed sea, a boat is safer than in the water. And yet, Peter would rather be with Jesus out in the stormy sea than still in the pre presumed safety of the boat. Because Peter recognizes that on the water in Je with Jesus is safer than in the boat without him. Notice Peter doesn't request Jesus to come on board. That's to me one of the strangest things. He doesn't say, well Lord, if that's you or since it's you, why don't you walk on over to the boat and rebuke the sea like you did last time? Now that may have been understandable. But Peter just wants to be with Jesus. And he says, Lord, since it's you, allow me, permit me, command me to come be with you. And I think that's pretty impressive. Now sometimes as Christians, it sure looks this way. And perhaps I have to admit sometimes in my own life, we really want Jesus to come to us. People act as though it's Jesus' responsibility to come to them where they are. They want to worship the Lord how they want to worship. They want to worship God on their terms, be that in the way that they partake in a public worship service. They want to live the lives that they want to live. They want to say what they want to say and look how they want to look. Basically, they want to be the master of their fate and they want Jesus to forgive them for it. They don't really want to go to Jesus. They don't want to bend to His commands. They don't want Him to be their Lord. They like the idea of a redeemer and a savior, but they don't so much like the idea of a king and a master. And so they really aren't looking to go to Jesus. And they certainly aren't looking to make any sacrifices. They aren't looking to step into any dangerous situations. Really, they aren't looking to get out of the boat to go to Jesus. They want Jesus to get in their boat and fix things for them. But that apparently was not Peter. And that is certainly commendable. But also we see that Peter's example is impressive. Because Peter obeyed Jesus' command. We're not told what, what Jesus thought. We're not told if he kind of smiled to himself. When Peter made this what we might think rash decision. To say well Lord let, 
command me to come. We're not told if he chuckled to himself. We're not told if he was impressed. We're not told if he thought, here goes Peter again. We're not told what Jesus thought. We're just told that he responds with one word. Come. Come on. You want to come out here? You're welcome to. Come. Now the thing about that one word is it is both an invitation and a command. In that word come, Jesus is inviting Peter to do what only Jesus has done. He is inviting Peter to transcend the plane of normal existence and taste for just a little while the supernatural with the ability to walk on water. That's a pretty incredible invitation that Jesus is extending to Peter. But you know that is also an affirmative command. The moment that Jesus said to Peter, come, Peter had no other choice unless he wanted to be disobedient. At that point, he either had to do what his master had said, or he had to reject Jesus. You know, salvation is much the same way. People don't like the idea of obeying because they look at it simply as a command. But the truth is, salvation and the Lord's commands are an invitation. It's much like in Revelation, one of my favorite verses where it says, The bride and the spirit say, Come, let him who is thirsty come. It's an invitation. The Lord has invited you to transcend the chains of sin and the death that it will bring and to live forever in the supernatural and incredible glorious presence of God, having your sins forgiven by Jesus' blood. That's the invitation to be redeemed, to be reconciled, to be made new, to be given eternal life. That is an invitation. But it is also a command. When Jesus commands us to be faithful, when he commands us to confess him as Lord, when he commands us to repent and change, when he commands us to be baptized, when he commands us to be faithful unto death, those are not suggestions. Those are imperative commands that in order to accept the invitation, we must be willing to obey. And so Jesus gives Peter this invitation and command. And what does Peter do? When Jesus said, come, I like the way that Matthew puts it. He says, so Peter got out of the boat. That's a big understatement when you really go back and look at it. So Peter got out of the boat. This isn't just getting out of the boat on a nice summer afternoon to cool off in the sea and take a swim. Peter's getting out of the boat in the middle of a storm that could very easily take his life. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on water. Notice to obey the Lord, Peter had to trust the Lord to make the impossible possible. If you ask me, that sounds like a pretty impressive faith. But really, that's what we must do as well. We must recognize that we have no capability to save ourselves. We have no ability, after we have sinned even just one time, to live a life that is so pure and so holy that it will make up for and atone for our infraction against the holiness of God and His will. It is absolutely impossible. 
But we trust that by Jesus' power, by Jesus' blood and his sacrifice, and because of the promises that he has given us, that when we respond to his invitation, that Jesus will make possible what we on ourselves face as impossible. That is, he will wash away our sins. You can't wash away your sins, and I can't wash them away. But Jesus can. And when we obey him and accept his invitation, then we are placing our trust in him to again make the impossible possible. And you know, when someone has that type of faith, amazing things can happen. Because Peter's faith and because Peter's obedience, Peter did something that no one else in the entire history of man except for Jesus Christ alone has done. Peter walked on water. Now again, many times people talk about the fact that we're going to look at in just a moment. You know, Peter's the only human being in the history of the world to have sunk in the water when he was right next to Jesus. He's the only person in the world to have given in to the doubt of the literal winds and waves that were about him and thus begun to almost drown. But the reason he's the only person to fail in that regard is because he's the only person that ever got out of the boat and walked on the water to Jesus. He was obedient and did exactly what Jesus said. Now we're not told how far he went, but it says that he came to Jesus. I don't think Peter got out and immediately began to doubt it appears that he was able to traverse whatever the distance was, be that 10 feet or be that 100 yards to where Jesus was, and he came to Jesus. It seems the text reads as though all Jesus has to do, now Jesus could have obviously uh, traversed whatever distance he needed to, but Jesus, it says, reaches down. So Peter made it almost the entire way to Jesus walking on stormy waters. Again, that is incredible faith. But of course, here comes the part in the story that we all know. After walking on these storm-tossed waters for a while, reality begins to set in. It says he sees the wind. You don't see the wind, but you can sure see the effects of the wind. He could feel the wind blowing against him. He could hear it drumming in his ears. He could see this, the waves that were rising right next to him and crashing against the boat behind him. And all of a sudden, a little worm of doubt begins to work its way in. And he thinks to himself, what in the world am I doing? What type of crazy person walks on water, more or less in the middle of a stormy sea? And we sit here and we think, oh, how could he do that? How many times have we, after beginning our walk of faith with the Lord been confronted with some temptation and thought, what am I doing? Why am I not partaking in all of the fun and the enjoyment that the world has to offer? Why am I giving this up? How many times have we maybe faced ridicule or mockery or some other form of persecution? And even if we didn't overtly think it, in the back of our mind, what we're essentially thinking is, what am I doing? Why am I suffering? 
Why am I letting people mock me and ostracize me? Why am I uh, threatening to lose my career just to go to church, just to be a Christian? Surely I can change things a little bit and it'd be okay. Can any of us really say that we haven't done the exact same thing that Peter did, just not quite in such a dramatic and miraculous fashion? I think we all have done this. Doubt is a dangerous, dangerous thing because it hinders us and it holds us back from full service to the Lord. Obviously, when, it's, when Peter had doubt, it doesn't mean that he had no faith. He wouldn't be where he was if he had no faith. But doubt kept his faith from being everything that it could be. Imagine if the story went that Peter went and met Jesus and he and Jesus together walked back to the boat. Or he and Jesus walked to the shoreline leading the boat behind them. That would be an amazing and impressive story. But instead there's this tarnish on it. Because of a little bit of doubt. And when we face doubts, and we will, we have to recognize them for what they are. We have to recognize their danger. And we have to buckle down and endure. We have to overcome those doubts and work in whatever ways necessary to overcome them. Because until we do, it will always hold us back from our full faithfulness and service to the Lord. But even in this example, even in this doubt, Peter gives us a wonderful example because he overcame the doubt by seeking Jesus' help. Yes, when he became distracted by the winds and the waves, which is probably more understandable than sometimes we give him credit for, we should also give Peter credit for the fact that he didn't try and save himself. Now, he was probably a very strong fisherman or a very strong swimmer, being a fisherman by trade on the Sea of Galilee. But he didn't trust in himself, he didn't trust in his strength and his abilities. He simply called out to Jesus as Lord. He said, Lord, save me. Peter recognized there was only one person who could possibly save him, and that was Jesus. And you and I need to be able to recognize that exact same fact. The only one who can save us is Jesus. We cannot trust in our own ways, our own works, our own righteousness. We must turn to the Lord for salvation. And that is true for us to obey the gospel and be washed of our sins. And it's equally true after we've done that and we stumble and we fall. As John says, we have an advocate with the Father. But you know, we have to make use of that advocate. We have to confess our faults. And we have to turn to Him for His redemption. We don't have to be baptized all over again or go through the plan of salvation again. But we do have to turn back to Him. That means we have to repent. We have to change our minds again to be faithful to Him. We have to trust in Him once again and lean upon Him and begin following Him once again. And Peter exemplifies this so wonderfully. But then Jesus is also a beautiful picture here. First, notice He takes Peter by the hand. Notice, and I don't want to make too big of a deal out of this, but Jesus saves the rebuke until after he has secured Peter's safety. Now some people, when, they, when someone needs help, they like to kind of stand back and do the lecture thing, and do the preacher thing, and make sure they really grind them down before they help them out. 
But Jesus immediately reached out and took Peter's hand. And even in the rebuke, which it is a rebuke, I think it's a light rebuke. He uses a word for doubt that we discussed this past Sunday. It's only used one other time. And it's of the disciples even after the resurrection. It's not a doubt of rebellion and hard-heartedness and uh, rejection. Again, it's a doubt of hindrance. And Jesus says, essentially, why? It's a question as much as it is a rebuke. He says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You were so close, Peter. You did what no one else could do because of your trust and your faith. Why did you let doubt hinder that? See, Peter wasn't faithless. But his doubt had been a hindrance. And so Jesus rebukes that. But I think Jesus also shows his love in this picture and can teach us something about helping others also. But then lastly, Peter is to be commended because he, along with the other disciples, worshipped. I'm sure he's included in that number of those that it says when Jesus and Peter came aboard the boat, they worshipped him and confessed him as the Son of God. There is an appropriate response when someone learns who Jesus is. When someone benefits from his grace by being washed and forgiven of their sins. When someone is able to pray to him after their conversion to be washed once again to be forgiven. And that response should be thankful worship. That is what Jesus deserves. That is what he is owed. Simply because of who he is. The Son of God. And even more so because He is our Savior. Jesus deserves to be worshipped daily in our thought and mind and devotion to Him. Jesus deserves to be worshipped and served through our obedience. Jesus deserves to be worshipped. God deserves to be worshipped collectively as the church is brought together. Our God is to be worshipped. Our Lord is to be worshipped. And every aspect of our life should be given in subjection to Him. And Peter did that. Peter wasn't perfect. Even after this, Peter's going to let fear rule him once again and deny Jesus. Peter's going to make some mistakes even after the beginning of the church. But I think there's a reason that Peter was given the keys to the kingdom. I think there's a reason that Peter was so close to the Lord. I think there's a reason that Peter is the man that he is. And it's because of his great faith. And it's because of his love for Jesus. And those things helped him overcome his weaknesses. You see, Peter was a man who, yes, he made mistakes. But Peter is not a man who is defined by his failures. He is a man who is defined by his faith in Jesus. And that's one of the most wonderful lessons of the life of Peter can teach us. We are all men and women of failure. But we don't have to be defined by our failure. If we will love the Lord. And we will faithfully submit to the Lord. Then we will not be defined by our sin. And our mistakes and our shortcomings. But we will be defined by our faith. And our love of Christ. And that's what leads to eternal life. And to that perfect life with our Lord. And so I hope that this study of Peter 
even in the midst of one of his failures, has encouraged you in some way, maybe given you some things to think about, some ways in your own faith to work upon. And hopefully it encourages you as you go out into the world. Now, none of us are going to have to step off of a literal boat to literally walk on water. But we are, metaphorically speaking, going to have to get out of the boat from time to time to face some dangerous and some perilous situations in order to serve our Lord. And I hope that this lesson has encouraged us to be the type of people that have the faith to do just that. And hopefully to do so without faltering and without doubting, but always placing our full trust in the Lord. As we wrap up the sermon, I want to extend the invitation. Perhaps there's somebody here tonight who's not a member of the Lord's church. You have the opportunity to do that this evening. If you believe in Christ as the Son of God and you're ready to live faithfully to Him, then you need to repent of your sins. That is, you need to change your mind and you need to begin to change your actions. And instead of living for yourself in the world, begin living in obedience to Christ. You need to confess Jesus as the Son of God and as the Lord of your life. And you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins. Until you do that, you haven't got out of the boat. You haven't been washed and you haven't been forgiven. But if you'll do that tonight, you can be made a child of God and you can begin your walk of faith with the Lord. If you're a Christian and you've begun that walk, but some doubt or some sin has hindered your journey, then repent of that. Confess that and pray to God. Or if you'd like us to pray with you and for you towards that end, then we'd be happy to do so. So if there be one in need, we'd invite you to come while we stand and while we sing.